To the church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called to be saints together with all those who are in every place. Call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that there be no division among you. But that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For just as the body is one and has many members. And all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Amen. Needless to say, this is one of those, uh, those texts that is a harder text in our Bible to understand. And for us as 21st century Christians, to even make sense of. And uh, so that's why we read through books of the Bible. Uh, when you read through books of the Bible, uh, what it forces you to do is, is uh, to not skip something that might be obscure, uh, a passage of, of text that might be challenging, instead to look at it, to work through it in hopes that we might glean from it, learn from it, and, and even be challenged by it. Our philosophy of ministry here as, at the transit is really what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, uh, 2 Timothy uh, 3.16. Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God. Those are funny words, but basically uh, what Paul is saying is that uh, although 40 different men authored the Bible, the books of the Bible, over about 3,500 years, their words are God's words. He inspired them to say what they have said or to write what they have written. He continues uh, that scripture is uh, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And then get this, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so here's, here's the thing about scripture. It's timeless and yet, timeless truths don't always fit neatly into our cultural settings, and this is one example uh, of that. And I bring up this point because there's a cultural reality to the text that we're reading today. I mean, this is, we're reading this text, and it sounds weird to us because we're 2,000 years uh, past when it was written. And, and in fact, I would say, if you're first time here at the transit, you picked a doozy of a week to come, right? <laughs> But more importantly, if you're a new Christian or you say, like, I'm not even a Christian yet, you're listening to the words that Kevin talked about from 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, and you're saying, this is nuts. Like, what kind of people would be talking about head coverings and head and men and women and, you know, got all these kinds of things? But I want you to, like, take, like, like breathe in, <gasps> like, let it out, right? Ah, that's what we do in the Army, right? And, uh, and then look around, like, okay, we, we kind of, sort of, almost look like normal people. Um, I'm looking, like, I, don't, I, I see some scarves. Uh, Kayla had on a nice little wraparound scarf there, but except for Kayla being stylish, I mean, we, we don't have any women with head coverings in, in the room, and so you can just, I mean, let down your guard. I'm not going to come and, like, shake you into uh, believe something that, I, uh, that you shouldn't believe. Um, so as I unpack the verses today, 
we want to do our best to, to enter into the culture of Paul's day and to extract from it the timeless truths that are relevant to us in the 21st century. Um, and those are the things we need to take seriously. So do that with me today. Here's a running theme that goes through uh, our, our text and will carry through to the next uh, three or four weeks that we're running through chapters 11 through 14. Um, Paul's going to uh, shift the topic. To, to honoring God uh, and each other in our public worship gatherings. Before now, he's been focused a lot on the individual and the corporate freedoms that we have, the liberties that we have as Christians as we live our lives out in the culture. And he's been challenging the, the Corinthian church as to, all right, so how do you be a Christian in the city and in the place and in the settings that God has placed you in? So starting today, Paul is, is, is turning the corner and he's going to start talking about church services, like, like what should we do? How should we come together uh, when we're coming together in God's house uh, to, to worship? And today he's going to pick up the issue of, of attire. And that seems like interesting. Is he really going to talk about what we wear? Yes, he is. He's going there. And, and what Paul's going to do is what he's done all along. He's going to both encourage and rebuke. He's going to affirm and he's going to correct. He's going to affirm those areas that they're adhering to the, the, the broad teaching of Scripture and of the, the, the traditions of the church. And he is going to correct where they are straying from that. And, and here's, I think, the, the phrase that we need to remember uh, through the next several weeks. It's, it, and it's this. Don't be offended, but it's true. Worship gatherings aren't always about you. We come in. And we come in with various perspectives of want and need, even even about worship or kids ministry or how things should look, the color of the chairs, the carpet, what should happen in this moment right now when a person stands up and, and preaches. And we we all want and need different things. And Paul would say it is good and right for us to have those needs and definitely those wants, and we want God the Holy Spirit to address them. But when we come together collectively, all of those wants can't be addressed over and above what the Holy Spirit wants to give us, our, our true need, and he knows that we need Jesus. And that brings us to our text. Look at verse 2. Now I commend you uh, because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Stop there. The word traditions here is important. Uh, Paul is not referring to traditions as in the way that we uh, celebrate holidays or, or family gatherings. He's referring to the body of teaching that was the fundamental constitution of the church uh, of, of his day. That constitution uh, doesn't change. He's talking about the way that they have adhered to uh, the gospel, the, that they've put Jesus front and center uh, of, of his life, his death on their behalf, in their place, on the cross, and his resurrection to give us life. And so Paul is commending them uh, on their adherence to those kinds of church traditions. And at the same time, he's correcting them on the point that, uh, uh, really an aesthetic point, and it's a point of uh, their attire, in particular, head coverings. Verse 4, he says, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, 
But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it's the same and it's as if her head were shaven. Culturally in their day, when they came together in worship gatherings, men didn't wear anything on their head. And it was a sign that they belonged to Jesus and he was their head. But the women did. So if you came to, to church, if a man, you saw a man wearing some type of, type of head covering, it would be firstly either confusing or perhaps even um, dishonoring to, to those that were in the gathering. A few examples. Uh, if you went to a, a Jewish synagogue and participated in worship there, the Jewish leaders, when they prayed, would put a, a type of prayer cloth over their head. And so if I'm in a Christian gathering and I see a man that has some kind of covering over his head, I may look at him and say, I mean, have, have we gone back to being exercising our, our Jewish religion? Is, is this the thing that we're doing now, or, or, or are we free in Christ? And so it could be confusing. As well, pagan priests would wear head coverings over their heads as a form of idolatrous worship, and it, confused, it could confuse someone that, that was coming from that if he were in a, a Christian service and saw a man wearing a similar covering over his head. Here's something interesting. Some men would grow their hair long as a means to announce that they were available for homosexual behavior with other men. And they would do that in the midst of the worship gathering. And Paul's saying that could be downright dishonoring. And so on the, uh, the, the side of the women, led, a woman letting her hair down or taking off uh, a covering that she was wearing on her head was a way of saying that she was unmarried and available. It could mean that she was uh, promoting herself to be a prostitute, and perhaps even worse, it could be that she was saying, you know what, I'm married, but I'm, 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 I'm giving off this signal that I'm actually married, but I'm available. And so if you're in a public gathering and you, with the saints and uh, a man or a woman who you know is to be a Christian, uh, or at least you think they are, and the man is wearing a, a head covering, the woman is not. In their culture, these were acts that would have been dishonoring to God. In the case of the woman, it would have been dishonoring to her marriage vows. And so Paul is bringing this to the Corinthians, and he's saying, I have concerns with this and your behavior because of three things. Firstly, as cultural, theological, and natural considerations. Culturally, Paul is thinking, what is the culture around you Seeing, seeing you do, and will it confuse them? Will it mislead them? What would the the what would we what would uh, what we're doing cause a stumbling block to those who are less mature in their faith? Theologically, what does this say that we believe about God and how He's made us? If we're Christians trying to obey God and yet you're doing this, what does it say about what you believe uh, in regards to your allegiance to to God and what He's said? Uh, for you. And then naturally, uh, there are implications here about the, the sexes, the genders. Biologically, what are men and women supposed to do? How are they supposed to, to carry themselves? One of the interesting reasons why Paul is bringing this whole thing up while he's addressing this with the Corinthians is that the Christian community was one of the most liberally progressive communities in the Corinthian society of, of their day. And I say that not to be political. I say that in a good way. If you're a woman here today, you need to understand that the freedoms that you actually enjoy and appreciate in our country right now goes all the way back to the Christian ethic where the Christians are looking at who men and women are created in the image of God and you get your value, your significance, and your worth from that as equal people on the planet. So that's the angle that Paul is coming from. 
And of course, this idea of of women being free to be themselves is is not something that's even um, appreciated or experienced. Country, I mean, worldwide even today. Its roots are based in Christianity on what God has said about us as men and women. So Paul is going to qualify uh, this idea of, of, of headship and uh, coverings or not being covered, uh, echoing that men and women are equal in image, worth, value, and significance, but there are distinctives in how God has made us that go all the way back to the beginning. And we should live and conduct ourselves in such a way that we honor God and each other. And in regards to this, he wants to bring up really uh, three things. He's going to focus on, uh, on three things. The first is equality. In other words, freedoms afforded the, the congregants of the early church would have seemed scandalous to the rest of the world uh, around them. Here's an example. If you were a Jewish woman and you had gone to worship on a particular morning, then um, you really were relegated not to the regular part of the worship. There would have been a veil in the midst of the, their, uh, their room like this. The men would have sat in the front. The women would have been relegated to the back of it. The, the, the women were not uh, allowed to be uh, official members of the synagogue. Only men could speak and contribute to the gathering. And so imagine yourself a Jewish woman. All of a sudden, you've converted to Christianity. You're going to Christian worship, and you're told that you're free to use uh, the gifts that God has given you fully in context of the local church. So, it, so all of a sudden, there's great value in, in being a woman, just in being a person. But in that, Paul also wants to provide balance and make sure that these women are expressing their freedoms in the context of God's economy and his order. The other importance is that in the first century, culture is, is, is hierarchical. The men had all the power, all the control. The men had value uh, exceedingly higher than, than women did in that culture. Women weren't seen as equals. And so all of a sudden, there's this beautiful equality in the Christian church that the gospel brings about. Paul will say here in Galatians, I'm going to start in verse 27. For as many of as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all, in, in, for all one in Christ. Paul's saying the gospel doesn't strip away our differences. What it does, it takes our differences and it puts it in the backdrop of who we are, the most important thing, our unity in Christ. And so that's why I would say here at the transit, we pray for and make efforts to grow our church as a diverse church. You know, diversity isn't just about race, although that's an important aspect of it. Uh, to be a diverse church uh, means that we are being diverse in uh, the means by which we employ both men and women in the use of our gifts to the glory of God and the good of the people around us. And so for us to focus on diversity means that we understand that uh, we are the ethnicity and the culture and the people and the gender that we are, not by mistake, it's intended by God. And when we are using those in concert uh, uh, with each other in the context of the local church, that's uh, 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 the most uh, grand and beautiful display of the tapestry of, uh, of God. And that's when we are our best selves. 
And so Paul reminds them of their equality, but also of their in- interdependence. Paul says that God made men and women equal in image, worth, value, and significance, that we're distinct in gender, how God made us male and female, but he's also going to emphasize their complete interdependence. He says the two are one in Christ, which means they're totally bound up with each other, inseparable and interdependent. In verse 12, Paul says, he points out that uh, this is true physically. In other words, uh, when God made Adam, remember he took... uh, He took a rib from Adam and closed up his place with flesh, and then he made Eve from that rib. It's also true in birth. There's not a person on the earth that hasn't come into life through the womb of a woman. But it's even more true in the Lord, Paul is suggesting. Both men and women owe their existence to God. He says all things are from God. That's what he means by that. And so Christian worship is expressed best when together men and women visibly give God the glory uh, of their interdependent lives. We're not supposed to be separated. And so men, are, men and women are equal. Men and women are distinct. Men and women are interdependent. And, and this is something that's very relevant to our culture today. You know, we're in this moment in history where our culture wants to say there's absolutely no distinction in gender. But here's what we should take from like the, the beginning to end of our Bibles, that gender is not a construct, that, that we can't wake up, look at our genitalia and say, you know what, I know what I am on the outside, but on the inside, I feel, I feel differently. We can say that, but it doesn't make your lot in life different. Gender is a created order that God put in place. Genesis 1 says, in the very beginning, he made them male and female. Even as I say that, I want to be sensitive because there are those of us, even perhaps in this room, that that struggle with this, this idea of, of, of gender identity, that you look like a man or you look like a woman, but on the inside, you perhaps might feel completely different or you struggle with that all of your lives. And those are real issues. And I want to be, uh, I want to not dishonor you by making slight of, uh, of this. But at the same time, here's, here's the very true issue with this. God is not struggling with this. He, he knows how he made you. He made us male and female. When we come together in marriage, he designed it to be male, female, husband, and wife. And God hasn't changed his mind on this one. Jesus affirms it in his teaching in the Gospels. And as a church, you got to know, we, we uphold this. The, the, that, that, the, the best you you can be is to be a fully male or a fully female you, that God calls us to be that, that we aren't asexual beings. I think our culture is so confused today about this, and yet biologically, the very nature of our bodies tells us that this is not that confusing. And so we want to honor God's creation and his intentions for men and women, because here's what God had in in mind for us as men and women. He said at the conclusion of of making Adam and Eve, he said, it's it's very good. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I've done what I intended to do, and it's very good. So men and women are equal. Men and women are distinct. Men and women are interdependent. And the next thing Paul talks about is headship. And the idea of headship really is the dominant theme in, uh, in this passage. And really, that's the, that's the point of contention. All right? Like, what, is, what does headship mean? Look at verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ 
is God. And so what does head mean as Paul is using it here? The Greek word uh, can mean three things. It can mean uh, leader or ruler. So I, I am the head as in I'm the leader or ruler of my family, of a village, of an organization, of a, of a people group. I am the head as in I'm the authority. I have the, 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 the most say as to what's going to happen. Or it could be I'm the head as in I am the source. I am the originator of, of this thing that, that's blossomed to whatever it might be. Uh, interestingly, the, 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 the way the Bible uses this word mostly is, is in, the, in regards to source. That's the most common way the, the Bible uses it. An example would be uh, God is the source of Christ. Not that he made Christ, but that through covenant he initiated Christ. Uh, uh, Christ, the second person of the Trinity, coming into creation by the incarnation, living, dying, rising for our, in our place for our sins. Christ as creator of the world and all that we know is the source of man and man, in, uh, in accordance with Genesis 2.21, is the source of woman. And the Bible here is suggesting uh, man is the source of woman only in the sense that uh, Adam uh, God took a rib from Adam and made the woman uh, in that. But the sense of the word that, that, that Paul is using here for head uh, is most captured by the, the idea of authority. And so I want us to look at what kind of authority that we're talking about. And for that, we need to go to Ephesians. So grab your Bibles and go to Ephesians. Here's what Paul says. I'm going to start in verse 21. He says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, verse 22, wives Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself, and is his, himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Right, there's a lot there. Uh, I'm going to keep us on this idea of headship, particularly the headship that looks like authority. And here's what Paul says. Bottom line up front, he's saying this is what headship looks like. As the husband submits to Christ, so a wife submits to her husband. That's, that's uh, Paul's definition of, of headship, this idea of, of authority. Verse 21 is, is important. In verse 21, Paul says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Whenever Paul talks about Headship, even though he uses the word submission here, he's talking about headship. He's using it in the context of roles. So in, in verse 21, Paul is speaking from the perspective of the roles of a brother and a sister in the family of God. That means, for example, although Larissa is my wife, as believers, we're called to submit to one another as brother and sister in the Lord. So you know, we can't, we, we can't nullify the fact that we are married, okay? But like, for example, last night, as we were just discussing this passage, my wife was giving me feedback on some of the things that I was planning to say, and she was giving me very good counsel. And although that counsel was coming out of my wife, really my wife was my, very much my equal at that point, and she was saying, from a woman's perspective, you need to know that we think like this, and this is the way it is, and I received it as such. And so Paul, before he calls wives to submit to their husbands, here's what he says. He says, submit to one another as brother and sister in Christ. 
What I think is so beautiful about this is, is really nobody gets to be unsubmitted. I know that's not a word, but it's just the appropriate way to say it, right? So even as pastor, me standing up here, um, you know, I got the mic, so I get the, I'm the one that gets to speak, but I'm not unsubmitted, even as I uh, preach and lead and sort of visioneer uh, the, the direction of our church. I'm submitted to the elders. Our elders are submitted to God. And collectively, we're submitted to you, the church body. And so that means that if, if you should hear or see Jeff say or do something that, that's not becoming of a, a brother in the Lord, someone that professes Christ, and, and even if I say or do something that's offensive because I got the mic and I get to talk a lot of words, say a lot of words, right? Last week, my wife... <laughs> Last week, I think I said charcuterie. So the, the very first words that came out of her mouth last week as my sister in the Lord, not as my wife, was it's charcuterie. What, which one is it? Yeah, yeah. See? Yeah. I'm submitted. There's no such thing as, as a person that's not submitted, Right? So husbands, being the head of your wife, what, I mean, what kind of authority is Paul referring to? I'm going to shock you here, he, he, right? He says, look at Jesus. That's what he's saying in Ephesians 5. He said, if you want to know what this looks like, how it plays out, submission, headship, authority, look at Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He lays down his life for the church. He gives himself up, and, and men as challenging Perhaps as hard as that might seem for you in whatever your context your life might be, when we need to hear this. When we hear the word headship, you need to think sacrifice, servanthood, death to yourself, death to always getting in your way. It's got to be my way or the highway. When you hear the word authority in the Bible, don't think power and control. Think rather responsibility and care, a willingness to give everything away for the good of another, not take it. In fact, I like the fact that Paul sandwiches this idea of headship back in uh, chapter 11, uh, headship and submission around Jesus. So turn back to 1 Corinthians 11. Look at verse 3 again. Paul says, I want you to understand that the head head of every man is Christ, the head of the wife is the husband, and the head of Christ is God. I think there's three things to note that he's saying. Firstly, we're called to submit to Jesus. That's the start point in your, in your Christian life. If this doesn't happen, everything in your worship is going to be broken. Because when you come to faith, you have, uh, you have uh, in essence, uh, made Christ Lord of, of everything about you. He then is your head. He's your leader. He's your ruler. He's your authority. He's your source. He's the one that you should be giving your allegiance to. So we're called to submit to Jesus. Secondly, we're called to submit like Jesus. Men in the room, particularly husbands, your picture of submission is how Jesus submits himself to God the Father. What does Jesus do? He willingly lays his life down for his bride, the church. So husbands, you are called to submit to Christ as your head by selflessly being willing to sacrifice your personal interests for the interests of your bride and everyone else in your care. And I should hear like a bunch of ladies like saying amen and amen. 
right? So, so ladies, I, if you heard what I said, I mean, I'm seriously, there should be an amen coming up in your soul. Because if, if, if that's not a man that you want, someone that is called to submit to Christ as your head, but selflessly and willingly sacrifices his personal interests for the good of you, then you perhaps don't know what good actually is. That's what you want in a mate. Now, here's the, here's the thing. This, this idea of authority is controversial because authority is so misused and broken and abused in our culture. We, we see it every day. We see it both in the church, in the home, and at the workplace. We, we see it everywhere. We live in a culture that tends to view authority as power and position instead of service and sacrifice. And because we value position and power so much, we can tend to devalue the person uh, unless that person has a role that benefits me. And, and, and that even works um, negatively in the church and in our homes. And that's the beauty of the gospel. That your identity is not in your position. It's not in the role that you play. Your identity is, is in Jesus and his position in the heavenlies. And when you come to faith in Jesus, you take on his identity. What's true of him is true of you. So regardless of uh, what position or what role you have, uh, you're with him in Christ, seated with him. And when you can receive this by faith, you can serve in any role that God puts you in without any sense that you've been diminished by the people around you. And that's a picture of Christ. Here's what, here's what Paul says about Jesus in, in Philippians 2. Starting at verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, but taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We're called to be like Jesus. We're called to see ourselves submitting like Jesus. Here's the third thing that Paul would say. We're not called to dishonor, but to honor. His focus here is on the glory of God. Look down at verse 7. For man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a wife ought to, not have, ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. I'm going to address this verse, this, these verses kind of out of order. The first thing that jumps out at me is this thought about angels. I mean, it's, Paul will like squeeze in just kind of obscure things about angels every once in a while. And this is a crazy thought, but here's what Paul is, is saying, not just suggesting. He's saying this. He's saying right now in this room, angels are with us, worshiping, watching over us as we honor God, that these angels are ministering servants. They go and... Um, do warfare for God. They go and carry messages for God. But for the most part, they're there just sort of stirring things up, making sure it's going the way that God intends for it, for it to go. They were there in the beginning when God created the world. They know the order of creation in a sense. They're watching to see if we know it. You get that? 
Angels are standing by saying, all right, so God, this is what God intended. Let's see what these humans are going to do. Paul says previously in, in chapter 6 that we will judge angels. That fa- I mean, that just baffles me. Um, Paul would say, God created us a little lower than the angels, and yet when he glorifies us, he's going to elevate us to this point where we get to judge the angels. And so these angels are observing what we're doing and how we're honoring God, and angels right now are with us, cheering us on, like, get it right, Transit Church. Get it right. Don't get ahead of God. Don't get outside of the boundary. Do what he said, because it's going to be for your good and for the flourishing of, of humanity on the earth. So here's a couple of things in regards to other verses here. To, to understand what Paul is getting at in regard to, to his, his idea of honoring and dishonoring and, and, and the glory that, that, that we're supposed to have as we serve God, he, he's going all the way back to Genesis. Genesis 1 is really the macro view of creation. And the, the pinnacle is God creates man in his image. Genesis 2, God comes and he gives us a micro view specifically of the creation of, of humanity. Some of you know the story. So God creates man out of the dust. He's, he breathes life into him. Uh, later, he brings animals to Adam and he has them name, name all the animals. Adam sees that in the naming of all these animals that they are they're paired together. Okay, they, they all have mates and we don't know what made Adam think about this, but he realizes that he's alone. And so Adam chooses, uh, God chooses, not Adam. Uh, and God says that uh, Adam is alone and that he'll make a helper suitable for him. Right. So God decides Adam's alone and then God chooses to make a helper suitable for him. That's where we get the idea of uh, that a wife, that a woman complements a man, this complementarian form. And so God makes a helper for Adam that's suitable for him. But interestingly, Eve is different. She's kind of the same, but she's different. And so how, how does God do it? He puts Adam to sleep. He, he opens up his flesh, he takes out a rib, closes up his place with flesh, and then he forms the woman. Note that God did not go and scoop another, another uh, more dirt and form it into Eve and then breathe into her. He made her from the man. That's important for how we're supposed to uh, 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 unpack verse 11, here, uh, chapter 11 here. And we aren't, we aren't told the details here, but at some point... Um, God wakes Adam up, and uh, we don't know if God like, gave him a, a, a sleeping pill or just like laid his hand on him and he's like, go to sleep, Adam. Um, but what we do know is up to this point, Adam had only seen animals, but he knew God was up to something. And so God wakes Adam up, and the first thing he sees is Eve, and the words that come out of his mouth were, whoa, man. Well, not really, right? <laughs> But he sings a song, right? He says, Genesis 2, 23. Uh, so this is flesh of my, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she came out of man. That was the first romantic song on the planet. And we still sing it today, right? It's a song that never goes old. Adam is singing of the beauty of God's creation, and it was the creation of the woman. And I think what makes it so amazing is, is she's someone that looks like him, but she's also different. And let's be honest, I think Eve had to have looked like a lot better. Like, for him to sing this song, she was far better looking. Glory is an important word here in verse 7. 
In context, it means full expression of another. So when the Bible commends that you and I live to the glory of God, for the glory of God, it says that as best as we can, we should live in all that we do, uh, in how we live, in how we work, in how we play, everything about us, that we should live to be a full expression of what God is like, that our existence on the planet is to display that before all that we would image God in all that we do. When Paul says the woman is the glory of man, he's referring to the fact that she came from man, was brought to man to be for man. Those are the words that, 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 um, that Moses will use as he writes Genesis, inspired by God. And I think this is key, ladies. And this is just me speaking. My sister, Larissa, we, we had a little contention on this, but the, the woman is not to be against the man. She was brought, she was, she came from man, was brought to man to be for man, not to be against the man, not tearing him down, not dishonoring him, not trying to make him less. But here's the the thing. It's true. Eve came out and she was glorious. Think about it. Adam sang a song when no song had been sung. And women in the room, you have the propensity because of your glory. It doesn't it doesn't carry more glory than a man, but you carry glory. And with that glory, there's there's influence, a lot of influence. And if you wanted to tear a man down, you very could with your look, with your sigh, with your one word. So Paul's not saying that a man is superior and a woman's inferior. He's saying the woman was created to come alongside the man who was not sufficient all by himself. In fact, the word helper is used of God when he comes to save us. He calls the Holy Spirit the, the helper, the complementer. Helper here means, fellas, we need help. So don't, don't despise that. Don't despise women on the planet. Don't despise your wife. In those, in those occasions where she's giving you advice or, or telling you what you need to hear. God has sent her to help you because you need help. Women likewise and equally reflect God's glory. They do that in a beautiful, different way. Um, some of you know the Griners. Um, so Steve was uh, one of our elders. Uh, Carrie was, uh, um, Deanna was part of a Titus too. Last week, their only daughter, Carrie, got married, and uh, uh, they left a couple months ago, so, so half of y'all won't even know them. Uh, but I sent them a note the day after the wedding, and my, my, my first sentence was, y'all still crying? Um, and then I hadn't seen pictures from the wedding yet. They're on Facebook now, so if you, got, you guys go check out how Kara looked. But I said, I said, I can only imagine how beautiful your daughter was as a bride. And Steve said, oh, man, as soon, as soon as she turned the corner and came out so that I could escort her down the aisle, I just bawled. She was beautiful. And isn't that the way that it is? You ever notice that um, we don't comment on how the groom looks? If, if we do, it's in passing. There's a picture of them both. It's like, oh, that's a beautiful couple. Look at what she's got on. Oh, he looks all right, too. We don't stand up for the groom. The groom sort of like slinks in the room with the pastor. They're in front. He's like, oh, he's here. Yeah. We stand up for the bride, her grand entrance. Have you ever thought about why we do that? Here's why we do that. Because in a wedding, we're enacting this beautiful scene of, of God bringing Eve to Adam and the, and the marriage that, that ensues. It's this beautiful picture of, of Adam being amazed at the glory and the splendor of his bride that, that, that ended up him just worshiping God with this beautiful song. 
And in that marriage, Genesis 2.24, two become one. And this becomes a beautiful display of, of how God the Father and the Son are one God, equal in three persons, but different in their roles. It's also a picture of how Jesus submits to the Father's will, being no less God than the Father. And in so doing, he shows what beautiful unity looks like in diversity. Um, I think I watched this movie like once a year. You guys remember uh, my fat Greek, my big fat Greek wedding? Is that what it's called? Um, this is a 2000s vintage, um, 2000s vintage uh, film for those of you who were born uh, after that. Uh, but it's a classic, a romantic comedy, and uh, I can't tell you the whole story. You should go watch it. it it'll it'll be funny and you know, and it'll bring less like. Uh, these beautiful moments of a, uh, a couple getting married. But, but here's the part that, that's funny and that's uh, pertinent to our context. The women are gathered, and these are Greek women, and they're saying this. They're saying, uh, women, we may be the head. Uh, men, they may be the head, but women are the neck, and the neck turns the head. You guys remember that line? All right, so firstly, that's bad theology. <laughs> right? And that's what I've been articulating. But, but here's the redeemed perspective of that. It's that, ladies, you got a lot of influence. And I've said that a couple of times because I really want that to sink in. You have a lot of influence. No more glory than man in terms of our imaging of God, but you got a lot of influence, and you have to know that. And so, so I would be lying if, like, standing up here on the stage preaching this message, that I didn't tell you that the person that influences me in life, like everyday life, from the moment I get up until the end of my day, other than Jesus is my wife, right? My wife can, can move me, can stir me. She can get me to do things I don't want to do, right? But it's oftentimes it's for our good, especially if the wife is well-intended. And she's intending to be as glorious in her imaging of God as you are in your imaging of him as well. So, so men in the room... Many of us have become better men, better displays of the glory of God because of the women in our lives. And I think it plays the other way out as well. Here's the, here's the bottom line. I think we need each other. Men and women, we need each other. And there's this beautiful glory in this. Paul wants to make sure that we understand that all authority has the opportunity to honor or dishonor. And, and this is an important point as well. All, God, all authority is, is given. All godly authority is given. You don't take it. And so if you find someone who, who's taking authority or feels entitled to authority, then most likely the way that they're exercising authority is going to be very destructive. Because when we look at Jesus in the Bible, he doesn't take authority. It's given to him. He, he got it by submitting to God the Father. Jesus says in the Gospels, I don't do, I don't say what I want. I only do and say what the Father tells me to say. He says, I came to do the Father's will. At the end of Jesus' ministry in Matthew 28, he says, all authority under heaven has been given to me. So how does he get authority? He gets it by submitting himself to God the Father. And so let me, let me, let me close this down. Let's go all the way back to this idea of, of the church at Corinth and what it means for, for head coverings. So that's, that's really what we're talking about. Here's what's going on. The women are coming in the church, and they've got this newfound freedom in Christ to use their gifts in public worship, which is what we want. As a church, we want both men and women using your gifts freely for the, uh, the, the glory of God and the good of all of us who are here. We want that to happen. 
But these women, in particular, are throwing off everything that distinguishes them as, as female and as women, particularly they're removing their head coverings. And I know that sounds stupid, right? To, to our 2000, 2000 what year is it? 19, 19 years. But, but here's what Paul's, his point is. Paul says it dishonors their husband and it doesn't glorify God. He says it's unchecked liberalism. And that's not a political liberalism. He says it's, it's going outside the boundaries of the gospel. Paul's call is for women to express their gospel freedom with, within the order God has set out in creation, an order intended to lead to maximum human flourishing. I mean, that, that's his point. And here's the other side, because the, men, the women aren't the only ones who were in error here. On the other side is the men were covering their heads, and that was equally dishonoring because they were negating their headship the headship that God had gifted them to to lead in the context that he had given them. Here's how Paul concludes, verse 14. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it's it's, it's her glory. For her hair was given, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice nor do the churches of God. So Paul concludes that men and women are, I mean, they both need to dress normally and naturally in public worship. That, I mean, that's his conclusion. And I know that sounds like, well, that was kind of like, duh. Like, dress appropriately. Um, we're not going to argue with you if you come in with a hat or no hat. Now, uh, back, back in the old days, ladies, if you came in with a mini skirt or a skirt that was, like, too tight, my wife tells me in her, her church, I mean, the, the ladies of the church, they would come in with a shawl and they would lay that over your, lay that over your, your lap so that you aren't dishonoring the, the, the worship as it's going on and cause people to, to lose attention. We're not going to do that to your transit church. So here's how we apply this. I think Paul would say, men, let's be men. Let's, let's be men. Not just culturally, because that's all, over the, that's all over the map, right? Let's be men as God has designed us to be men. Don't ignore blatant opportunities to lead at home and in the church. And men, we can do this, can't we? Like sometimes we can say, well, why would I do that? That's a woman's job. Why would I teach the kids? That's a, that's, I don't, men don't do that nowadays. Don't ignore blatant opportunities to lead at home and in the church. Don't shirk or relegate responsibility. We can do that too. Paul would say, don't be ashamed to be men. That's what God's called you to be. Particularly in the homes, husbands, love, serve, build up your wives, lay down your lives for your family. And to the women, Paul would say, submit to your husbands in a way that allows them to be what they were meant to be for God's glory. And this is important, for, for your good. When your husband is, is reaching for an image of God that reflects God in his glory, it's going to be for your good as well. Ladies, don't despise your husbands. Ladies, don't despise men in general. Don't dishonor them. And, in, and collectively, men and women, let's not dishonor other men and women by talking about them in demeaning ways, because we can do that as well. Let's not tear each other down. Rather, let's build each other up. Let's be a different culture than the culture around us. And when we come together in worship, let's like we are today, let's honor God in the way that he makes all of our relationships flourish. And I say that because, I mean, men didn't think this up. This is God's plan. It's his agenda. And to use a military term, we're under his command. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful.
Sometimes we happen upon words that are challenging, um, even in their first century context. And this is one of those passages. I pray, God, that you would help uh, our congregation to, uh, to receive and even absorb that, uh, that, that part of my words that may have reflected what you would have by the Spirit for us in ways that you want us to, to, to live and act as people of God in, in our culture today. And if I've said anything to, to trip up or anything that might be uh, to, to devalue anyone, God, I pray that they would not re- remember that. Holy Spirit, we need you. We're here because we need you. We confess that up front. So, uh, Lord, help us to use our gifts as men and women. Help us, Lord God, to more reflect the image of God that you've created us in, that we would uh, be a diverse body of people uh, called to your glory. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. And amen.